Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of HTT Talks Trucking. I'm Equipment Editor Jim Park. The Environmental Protection Agency published its final rule on NOx emissions late last year. That rule sets out very aggressive NOx reductions targets and gives engine makers a very short timeline to get it done. Some are predicting a significant pre-buy will likely occur in 2026, which is when the 2027 model year trucks come to market. Others, including my guests on this episode, believe it'll be a manageable transition, though not without some hurdles. He says engine makers have options, such as emissions credits and natural gas engines to help ease the way toward the 35 milligram NOx standard mandated by the EPA. Patrick Couch is a partner and a senior vice president of technical services at clean transportation consultants Gladstein, Neandros and Associates. If you haven't already, please give us a like and poke that subscribe button. And in case you're new to this channel, there are lots of great trucking industry coverage on HTT's website, truckinginfo.com. This is HTT Talks Trucking. We'll be back with Patrick Couch right after this. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of HTT Talks Trucking. This is the second in our series on the new EPA low NOx regulations that are coming our way in the next few years. Today, we're speaking with Patrick Couch. He's the partner and a senior vice president of technical services with Gladstein Neandros and Associates. They're based in the Santa Monica area, and they keep tabs on things like emissions rules that are coming our way. Uh, Patrick, good to have you aboard this afternoon. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Jim. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into these rules and start getting specific about stuff that's in them, uh, they were published late in December the 20th, to be precise, just before Christmas, which is an old EPA trick. Uh, what are you hearing sort of generally from the industry, um, the environmental advocates, and, and maybe the public on this rule? Is, is it going over well? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. The The rule itself is fairly closely aligned with the California Air Resources Board's LONOX omnibus rule, which has very similar emission standards and deadlines. Uh, and so I think there's uh, support for the bill from a number of the environmental uh, justice groups and the uh, regulators at CARB. Um, the fleets and OEMs certainly would like to see a harmonized bill so that we don't have a 49 state and a one state rule to have to comply with. Uh, but there are certainly concerns about the stringency uh, around the rule and the timing of the rule. Have you heard anything from the general public if they have a voice in this? You know, I, I think these sorts of rules and, you know, seem like regulatory sausage making to most <laughs> folks. And they just, yeah. they don't have any context for what these rules mean to them. I would agree with that. Yeah, they just hear that trucking is getting more emissions rules and they cheer generally. I, you know, I, I think, uh, I think that where the public becomes aware of the rules is when it starts to impact things like supply chain availability, cost, and, and some of the things that have become more uh, prevalent in the general conscience coming uh, out of COVID. Yeah. We'll dig into that, about that a little bit later in the interview. Uh, how closely aligned are the rules to CARB's omnibus rule? Uh, I know that was one of the things that the industry wanted to see. Are they close enough to keep everybody happy? They're similar, but they're not entirely aligned. The CARB rule is more stringent than the EPA rule. It has a 0.02 gram standard in 2027. 
whereas the EPA rule has 0.035 grams standard. CARB also has an interim milestone, and they have some additional useful life requirements in the heavy-duty engine group. So there are some significant differences between the two rules. We also have to realize, of course, that the CARB rule requires EPA to grant CARB a waiver to implement the new regulation. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. We don't actually know if EPA is going to grant that waiver or not. So there's an open question there. Um, that said, the CARB rule does allow uh, for manufacturers to achieve a 50-state compliant engine by certifying their entire national diesel engine fleet to a higher um, standard than what's called for in the 24 to 26 model year period under the CARB rule. So there is some opportunity, uh, at least through 2026, for manufacturers to build a 50-state compliant engine. Well, that'll certainly relieve some of the burden, the engineering burden on this one. Uh, they, they set pretty aggressive reductions targets, both sets of rules, uh, and a very short timeline to get it done. I know from the comments that the engine makers and other people provided uh, prior to this rule being published in the in the comment phase, uh, they were quite concerned that they wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, they use words almost to that effect. Um, and yet the rule seems to be pushing hard in that direction and equally hard to adopt um, an electric vehicle infrastructure. To me, both seem equally infeasible at this point. We don't have the infrastructure to manage uh, transition to electric vehicles on a large scale yet. Uh, so we've got this tight timeline. We've got very strict rules and almost no way of complying with either option. <laughs> Uh, that leaves everybody in a, between a rock and a hard place. So what happens now? Well, I think uh, I think you're correct that most of the engine manufacturers don't believe that diesel engines can meet what we call the direct standard in 2027. The direct standard is the standard you would have to comply with without credits. Uh, and that's what we call the 0.035 standard or 35 milligrams, however mm -hmm. you want to refer to that. Um, but EPA has built into this rule the ability to generate credits uh, for NOx that can be used to certify engines above the direct standard from 2027 through 2034. So what we expect to see in the near term is that a number of the engine manufacturers, diesel engine manufacturers, will begin certifying their engines below the current standard but not as clean as the direct standard that's going to be required in 2027. And we'll be able to bank a certain number of credits over the next few years. Uh, and they may also employ a few other mechanisms to generate credits. Uh, and that will allow them to not suddenly have to stop selling diesel engines in 27, but be able to spread that, uh, uh, extend that sales life for those engines and, hopefully provide enough time for the market to get to the point where we actually are able to bridge the gap and, and transition to um, either zero emission or other, you know, substantially cleaner combustion solutions. So if I get what you're saying, if they come up with a rule, uh, with a, an engine that's below that standard earlier in the timeline, they'll be getting credit for that? If they're cleaner than the current standard. Current standard. 0.2 or what yep. we call 200 milligrams. And we have a number of uh, examples of diesel engines out there today that are certifying 
their test values are well below the 0.2 gram standard. And so those are the ones that are most likely over the next couple of years to be certified to a lower standard and begin to uh, help build a bank of credits for the engine manufacturers. Okay. As I understand it, they're not going to allow credits on BEVs or ZEVs to come into that equation. Is that right? Uh, I believe that's correct. Are there any technologies sort of on the near horizon that you think are capable of replacing an equal number of diesel trucks? I'm thinking hydrogen or natural gas-powered equipment. Uh, You you can't simply take thousands of diesels off the road because they don't comply. Uh, We're going to need something to move goods around. Is there anything there that you think is well-positioned now to take uh, take that role? Yeah, you know, I think natural gas right now is sort of the incumbent alternative, right? And the engines that are certified for the the heavy duty and the long haul space and most of the uh, vocational class seven and eight applications like refuse and transit, uh, they're already at and below the 2027 standard that's mm-hmm. proposed in the rule, right? Um, so they're they're sort of the natural go to. Um, and we may actually see uh, engine manufacturers promoting the sale of the uh, low NOx natural gas engines in the near term as a way to not only sort of prepare fleets for this transition, but also to uh, build that bank of credits so that they uh, they have options uh, post-27. The, the other one that's sort of on the horizon, I guess I would say there's two that are on the horizon. One is the Cummins uh, hydrogen uh, combustion engine, right? Mm-hmm. Cummins has a lot of confidence and, and I think, optimism for that engine. Um, they're building in a 15-liter class, which will be great for the heavy and long-haul folks. Um, and so that that's something that's coming, uh, not as established, obviously, as natural gas. Um, and then we're seeing some interesting uh, platforms like the Hylion natural gas hybrid, right? which depending on how that gets certified under the, uh, under the rule could um, also generate substantial additional credits. Well, where does natural gas stand in the regulators crosshairs? It, natural mm-hmm. gas in name, at least is still considered a fossil fuel, even though we have the renewable variety, which is quite different. Uh, is it going to stand the test of time? Is it going to be around in 10 years or are the regulators going to see to that before we get there? It's a good question. And, you know, GNA has been working with medium and heavy duty fleets for 30 years. And, and a lot of that time was focused on natural gas. That was the alternative that was available to diesel in most commercial applications for a long time. And the industry has made tremendous progress in terms of building up RNG production. Um, from a variety of sources, not just landfills, but, you know, dairy digesters and mm-hmm. food waste digesters. So there's this growing supply of renewable natural gas, um, right as rules like the advanced clean uh, uh, fleets rule are, are coming into effect or being proposed. And so I think what you're going to probably see is that we're going to have, even though we might have a 50-state diesel engine standard, we might end up having a bifurcation of uh, states, some of which are on a purely ZEV path, and those will be our ZEV states, the ones that are adopting the California regs. But about two-thirds of the country are not ZEV states yet, and mm-hmm. they may decide that natural gas is a good near-term option that gets immediate emissions benefits 
uh, especially when paired with RNG, uh, and that that will be um, the mechanism that they use to make immediate gains. Well, what's your take on the supply of RNG around the country? I know it's high in California. Uh, it's very high in California. Uh, in fact, we're sort of running out of tailpipes to consume uh, RNG in the nice state. Nice problem to have. Um, and and we're seeing additional in-state development. We're, we're projecting a lot more volume to, to be online by 2024 in the state due to dairy digester project funding and some other efforts, mm-hmm. um, including rules that require landfill diversion to various digesters. So I think we're going to see increasing growth in um, the RNG space. There's a lot of concern out there or talk about the fact that there's not enough RNG feedstock to displace all fossil gas in pipelines. Um, and that's that's likely true. Um, but I think the, the question is better asked, is there enough RNG to meaningfully supply uh, some of the applications that are difficult to electrify, like medium and heavy duty trucking, mm-hmm. right? And I, the answer to that is clearly yes. And so we shouldn't discount the role that RNG can play in uh, some of these applications where, you know, realistically, we're still at least a decade away from having sufficient uh, electrical um, or hydrogen fueling infrastructure to support those operations. Mm-hmm. If we went to a higher concentration of RNG devoted to trucking, would that require new supply lines and new infrastructure, or could the existing infrastructure handle just RNG as opposed to natural gas off the pipeline with RNG blended in? Yeah, I mean, most RNG today um, is transferred in what we would call a book and claim structure, right? You put gas into the system at one point, and you take an equal volume of gas out at another, and you account for the volume and take the credit for the fact that the volume mm-hmm. you extracted was the renewable gas that was injected elsewhere. It's the same model that's used when uh, you know somebody in um, one state claims the renewable electricity production from wind turbines in another state, right? Um, the important part is that the net balance into the system and taken out of the system uh, matches and that you can you are the only one making those claims on that renewable gas. And under that approach, renewable gas is a drop-in uh, substitute for um, traditional pipeline gas. And it uses the same infrastructure uh, to transmit uh, and uh, dispense the, the fuel. So it would be seamless for the consumer then? Correct. There's some paperwork on contracts uh, yeah. to, to manage to make sure that you're protecting that unique claim to the renewable attribute, but it uh, it doesn't require a, a new pipeline infrastructure or special dispensers or special engines or anything like that. Right. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of special engines, uh, we're already hearing about fleets that are drawing up plans to get over this hump. Uh, we've talked about pre-buys and no-buys and you know, fleets keeping their trucks in service longer than they normally would, which of course will drive up their maintenance costs. Uh, it could also, I think, create a, a two-tiered system where you have financially strong fleets who can weather that period of time and, and the ones that can't. Uh, that's going to have impacts downstream on the supply chain if the number of trucks starts to go down 
or they become more unreliable. Uh, what do you think that's going to do to a, what I would call an already rickety supply chain? Uh, you know, plagued with park shortages, rising costs, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's certainly going to be a challenge. Any any transition uh, creates these sorts of challenges, and and the folks that have the least capital uh, available to them uh, usually have the hardest time navigating that transition. Um, I don't know the answer in exactly how it's going to play out. My crystal ball uh, doesn't tell me that, but um, I don't think any of us should be under the impression that these transitions are going to be smooth or easy. No, I don't think anybody's expecting it to be painless. <laughs> it certainly wasn't back in 2007, and that, I think, was a fairly minor upgrade to what we're seeing with this particular change. Yeah, and, and I think the 2007 and 2010 transitions are, are instructive. Um, natural gas was part of that transition um, as well. Um, it, re it included increasing uh, purchase costs and operating costs on diesel engines with the addition of DPFs and SCR systems. And so uh, one of the things that we saw was that those first generation engines with SCR had a lot of problems. It took mm -hmm. the engine manufacturers a couple of years to sort that out. And it, it cost the engine OEMs, but it also cost the fleets who weren't able to uh, rely on the new vehicles that they were purchasing. The other interesting predicament that the engine makers find themselves in now, I'm sure, uh, is the competition for resources, engineering resources. They, this technology needed to get down to uh, 35 milligrams is going to be pretty complex. At the same time, they're getting pushed hard to perfect the battery electric vehicle. Uh, their engineering resources aren't limitless. Now, if you want to throw natural gas into that pot, it gets a bit more complicated, but uh, something's going to have to give there at some point. What, what do you think's um, going to be the make or break component in that challenge for the OEs? Well, I think the good news with respect to natural gas is that we're basically already below the direct standard. So there's going to be some work that has to be done around making sure that they comply with useful life uh, requirements and deterioration rates. But I don't think there's actually a lot of additional engineering that needs to go into uh, natural gas, at least on the engine platform side. I would agree. Yeah. Um, on the diesel side, the strategies are really to sort of amp up the existing um, after-treatment systems, right? Higher uh, DEF injection rates, maybe additional catalysts for the SCR systems, um, and maybe, you know, uh, fuel heaters, essentially uh, fuel-fired exhaust heaters to maintain those catalyst temperatures. The manufacturers kind of know how to do that. They haven't wanted to do it because it adds weight and cost uh, and complexity to the system. So um, I don't think they're going to have to engineer entirely new control and after-treatment strategies and solutions like they did in 20, 2007 and 2010. Um, but, it, but it's still going to be a challenge to make sure that what they build works reliably in the field. So that will take engineering resources. Mm -hmm. That said... We've already heard from a number of major truck manufacturers um, and engine manufacturers that they are no longer going to invest in the development of new diesel engine platforms, right? The sort of this decade is the last diesel engine platforms that they're going to engineer. Mm -hmm. And so taken in concert with the, the, the uh, 
the push towards electrification, I think we're going to see most engineering resources um, go to electric. That seems like a reasonable approach at this point, because, I mean, diesel is going to be around for a long time to come. And the existing platforms are going to have 20, 30 years of useful life baked into the technology and the design. So, but new platforms, probably not. That's right. And I think when you, if you assume that the credit strategies will get diesel engine sales out to 2034, uh, you know, a diesel engine sold in 2034 could realistically be on the road in 2050, Mm -hmm. right? So diesel won't just vanish off the face of the earth in 2027 or 2034. There's going to be a substantial legacy fleet, but the manufacturers are pretty clearly signaled that their current strategy for additional R&D investment is not going to be in diesel. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, I mentioned earlier at the top, we talked about, you know, the public's impression of all this. You said most people aren't even aware of it. Um, but at some point, do you think all of these hurdles and hoops we're jumping through as an industry are going to get us back in people's good books? At some point, <laughs> I mean, we're the industry everybody loves to hate. Nobody would mind if we were thrown under the bus. Uh, but then I say, well, go to the train station and pick up your groceries. Uh, uh, is this going to be good for trucking's image in the long run, do you think? I think it will help. Um, you know, the, the public's most direct interaction it has with trucking is not wondering how the box of cereal got into the store. It's driving down the road or having the truck drive past your house or, you know, th those sorts of interactions. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that trucks are visibly cleaner, quieter, sort of better neighbors, if you will, to people while they're on the road and, and at their homes, I think that will help. Um, I don't, though, want to overstretch that because the reality is a lot of people simply don't want trucks in their neighborhood end of story. And the fact that the truck is zero emission isn't going to change the fact that the truck yeah. is in their neighborhood. Right. Um, so there has to be some additional thought around transportation planning and zoning and trying to make sure that um, trucks are given the space they need to operate to supply our services uh, without, um, uh, putting them in direct conflict with the average person who would honestly, you know, <laughs> rather not know they exist yeah. and rather not know how things got to the store. Okay. Well, before we wrap up, I'll, I'll give you a chance. If you have any, you know, personal thoughts or observations you'd like to uh, add to this discussion, something I haven't asked you about or something else we should be thinking about maybe. Um, you know, I think for me, we're, we're in a, really a truly generational transition time, right? The, the transition to zero emission is going to happen. It is going to be difficult and messy, and it's not going to happen on the timelines uh, that, that people would like or, or project. And so, you know, I guess my message for, for any fleet that's out there listening um, is really pay attention to what's going on here. Try to dig into how your fleet would look under a zero emission operation mm -hmm. and start using this time to get ready for when you have to do what you have to do. Right. This is, you don't want to come to this last minute and, and try to comply. Um, so 
it, yeah, it would, it would be nice to say there's going to be a silver bullet that's going to make this easy. Um, I just don't see it. Uh, and I think it's going to, there's a lot of work ahead of us to navigate this transition. Well, thanks for that, Patrick. I think that's a pretty informative discussion. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jim. We've been speaking with Patrick Couch. She's a partner and senior vice president at Gladstein Neandros and Associates. He's in the technical services end of it. And Patrick, we sure appreciate your insight. Thank you, sir. Don't forget to subscribe to Heavy Duty Trucking's YouTube channel and give us a like. That helps other people to find us. You can check out our other social media platforms too. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And remember, there's lots more great written content about the trucking industry on our website, truckinginfo.com. I'm Equipment Editor Jim Park. Thanks for watching. Thank you.